One of the beautiful things about scripture is its depth of meaning. It's multi-layered, multi-faceted, no word is wasted. And because we believe that scripture is living and active, we can come to a passage we know quite well and discover something new, see some facet afresh. Like a good work of art, scripture invites us to draw near, to look close, and to be captivated by what we discover. So as we enter into this familiar story of the Last Supper tonight, my prayer is that God would give us eyes to see it afresh, and that Jesus would walk into this room like he walked into the upper room that night, and person by person, row by row, minister to each of our souls. God sees us. He knows what we need, and he descends from his throne to take a seat at the table in order to save us and to make us his daughters and sons. So let's turn to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Feed us with it tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body and blood. Encounter us afresh with your love. And Holy Spirit, do what you long to do in each of our hearts and our lives tonight. We surrender this time to you, and we pray that you would use it for your glory and our good. Amen. So turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Luke 22. Our story begins with the Passover, and Luke tells us that Jesus sent Peter and John to prepare the Passover for them. He tells them to look for a man carrying a jar of water and to follow that man into a house with a large upper room. Now, this would have been a very strange thing to see because only women carried water jars in that culture. But it was a sign, perfectly devised by a sovereign Lord who is always in the details. And so they entered this upper room, and tradition teaches us that this is the same upper room where the resurrected Jesus will later appear to comfort his frightened disciples and to show a doubting Thomas his scars. And it's the same upper room where the Spirit of God will come at Pentecost in tongues of fire to fill God's people with God's very presence. This is a sacred place. And Luke tells us that the room was furnished. And you, you might easily skip this detail as I did at first, but after further reflection, I think it's significant. A typical Passover celebration in Jesus' time would have looked like a banquet with pillows and linens and a meal that included multiple cups of wine and multiple courses. It was a production. And, you know, this is no simple meal. Because of that, you couldn't just host the Passover anywhere. You needed just the right space. And as anyone who has had the challenge of looking for a venue, any moms of brides or former brides in the room, you know this is not an easy task, especially in a city teeming with pilgrims where it would have been hard to find a vacant place that suited their needs. But the disciples didn't need to look because Jesus had already taken care of it. The room was furnished, the tables were spread, the linens were ironed, in Anglican terms, the altar guild had already been there. All that Peter and John had to do was prepare the food. On the night he was betrayed, the night before he would be brutally killed, Jesus provided for his friends. 
And I think there's a word for us here. Jesus didn't leave them to fend for themselves or to just figure it out. He didn't forget to book a room or ask them to look for a place. He didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry, guys. You know, I thought I was going to do that, but I, I forgot. But, you know, you guys are great. You'll figure it out. You're up for the task. No, he had a perfect plan in place. Perhaps there's someone here tonight who needs to hear that God has it all worked out. That he's a God of the details. And that he knows your needs and exactly how to meet them. And that he's not too busy or too distracted with the wounds of the world to answer your prayers, however insignificant they might seem. Our God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And not stingily, not begrudgingly, but lovingly, like a good father. And like Jesus in this passage, God is finding the room and furnishing the space and attending to all of the details so that all you have to do is walk in and sit down at the feast. Will you trust him? And this God who loves to provide shows himself most wondrously in the provision of his very body and blood. And as we look at this Last Supper tonight, I want you to see that God descends because of his love in order to save us and to make us his daughters and sons. If you hear anything tonight, it's this. God descends because of his love in order to save us and to make us his daughters and sons. So in verse 14, scripture tells us that the hour had come when the time for the Passover meal had arrived and Jesus reclined at the table with his disciples. Now the disciples had celebrated Passover their whole lives, and so they knew what to expect. In a typical Passover celebration at the time, the meal would begin with a blessing, pronounced by the head of the household, in this case, Jesus. And they would drink the first cup of wine, eat some bitter herbs, and then raise their second cup. And the youngest member of the group would ask why this night is different from all other nights, and the head of the family would tell the story of the exodus from Egypt. The point of the Passover was to commemorate a past salvation, when God had spared them from death by the blood on their doors and saved them from Egyptian bondage. But Jesus, in this moment, is inviting them to see something new, that a greater deliverance has come, that the God who drew them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm is seated beside them at the table. And that the promised Messiah for whom they have longed is here, making ready the sacrifice of his own body and blood. Jesus is taking a well-loved ritual of remembrance and reconstituting it. Like the bread and the wine, which becomes in a special way his body and blood, this meal takes on new meaning. It's no longer a mere memorial of Exodus, it's the institution of a new covenant. As Jesus says in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And this language of new covenant is key to understanding what Jesus is doing right here. It's the context the disciples need to understand what is happening. And because Christ is so kind, he manages to convey in just a few words an incredible depth of meaning. This phrase that he uses, poured out for you, it's actually the same phrase that would have been used to describe the blood of a sacrificed animal poured out on the altar. So Jesus is saying, he will be the sacrifice, and his blood poured out will inaugurate the new covenant. 
And this language of new covenant, this would have been familiar to the disciples because the prophet Jeremiah had predicted this very day when God would make a covenant with his people, not like the Mosaic covenant with its conditions and curses, but a new covenant, not dependent on their good performance, but on God's sacrificial love. Listen to this from Jeremiah 31. The prophet writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with your fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant has come with these two radical promises, complete forgiveness of sins and a personal knowledge of a holy God. And these are radical promises and so radical that um, it would have sounded to the disciples kind of crazy because in order to understand this, we have to look at the old covenant. In Exodus, God descends on Mount Sinai to make a covenant with Moses, but he descends veiled in fire and smoke. The whole mountain trembles with his holy presence, and God tells Moses to keep back the people. For if they even approach the mountain, they will die. Moses alone, it's Moses alone who can draw near the Lord. For sinful people cannot approach a holy God. And Moses ratifies this covenant through the shedding of blood. In this case, the blood of bulls and goats, which is poured out on the altar and sprinkled over the people. The blood seals the covenant. And under this old covenant, forgiveness of sins occurs with a mediator, the high priest, who must repeatedly offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And even then, the high priest, only he can enter into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, only once a year. Under the old covenant, God's presence is walled off. It's restricted. It's cloistered behind curtains and strict rituals because a sinful people cannot approach a holy God. And under the old covenant, forgiveness is temporary. It's conditional. It's dependent upon the repeated sacrifice of the priests. But here, in this moment, God is doing something new. He is making possible what was formerly impossible, which is access to God and forgiveness of sins. In the new covenant, God comes close. In the person of Jesus Christ, clothed in flesh and blood, he comes not on a mountain, but in their very midst. And instead of giving them tablets of stone, the burden of a law that they could never fulfill, he feeds them with bread and wine. Because in his person and through his work, he has perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He has done all the work so that they don't have to. And because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, God's descends to the humiliation and the suffering of the cross so that the new covenant can be ratified not by the blood of bulls and goats that can never save, but by the perfect son of God and his blood poured out for us. God descends to the utter humiliation of the cross because he loves us in order to save us and to make us his daughters and sons. And as I sat with this passage this week, 
I was particularly struck by one detail. It's actually the absence of an important detail. There is no mention of a lamb at this Passover meal. And this is very significant because that would have been the central point of the meal. And commentators believe that Jesus actually chose to celebrate the Passover on the night before the official celebration, before the Passover lambs had been slain. Which means that in the city of Jerusalem, the Passover lambs would not be sacrificed until the next day, Good Friday. And they would be sacrificed from 12 to 3 p.m., the exact hours Christ hung on the cross. The God of the universe has become the lamb who was slain. This is a glorious gift. But in the wake of this glorious gift, Jesus stuns his disciples with a tragic revelation that the hand of the betrayer is with him at the table. There is one who has heard this good news of the new covenant, but will choose not to receive it. One who will choose to walk away. And now Jesus makes clear this is all part of the plan. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God is in control. This betrayal will not touch Jesus off guard. He has known that this moment would come since before time began. This is the plan for salvation and the salvation of the whole world. But it's nonetheless heartbreaking. Because Christ came so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He descends because he loves us. And he wants to give us this gift of salvation. But in order to receive this gift, we must put our faith in him. And Judas doesn't. He spurns the gift. And the way Jesus responds to the presence of betrayer shows us what awaits those who spurn the gift. Jesus says, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Woe is this exclamation of grief and judgment, grief over Judas' choice, and an announcement of the just penalty he will pay as a result. In the Monday Thursday account in Matthew, Jesus goes even further to say, it would have been better had he not been born. Jesus doesn't mince words here because he knows what awaits those who do not put their faith in him, and that is eternal judgment, for the wages of sin is death. But 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God does not want anyone to perish, but that all should reach eternal life. God's heart is that all would be saved all of the people he made and he loves. That's why he died. That's why tomorrow we will have three services in this sanctuary and call a day of death good because by his death he has secured our life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And Jesus is saying to Judas, to his disciples, to us, there is woe for the one who spurns Christ's sacrifice. So turn to Christ and live. But Judas turns away. He chooses the lie of self-sufficiency of life apart from God, the lie that our culture loves to dispense, which is that we are our own makers, and we do not need the one who made us and who gives himself to us tonight. And it's as if Jesus sees a tsunami of destruction, this woe of righteous judgment on the horizon, and he reaches out his hand to rescue us to help us up to safety with him. And all we have to do is grab his hand in faith. But Judas says, no, 
and he turns his face away and he walks towards the waves. There is woe for the man who walks away from the table. Woe for the one who turns from Christ. Woe for the one who hears the good news and says in her heart, I don't need it. Turn to Christ and live. I was thinking this week as I thought about the themes in this passage about some of my other favorite passages in scripture. And I realized that two of my very favorite stories, Mary's encounter with the resurrected Jesus in John 20, and Jesus and Peter's meeting on the beach in John 21, actually have a lot in common. In particular, they're both intimate conversations with the resurrected Christ. I don't know about you, but I love a good one-on-one conversation. The depth, the reciprocity, the opportunity for the very best kind of vulnerability. And what I love about these two stories is that in those moments, Jesus gives them his full attention. He gives his full attention to the one, to Mary in the garden and to Peter on the beach. He isn't rushed. He isn't distracted. He's perfectly and undividedly present to them both. And that is the picture of the way God wants to be with each of us. In the communion meal we will share tonight, God offers himself to us in a special way through the elements of the bread and wine. But he doesn't just offer himself to us in communion. He offers himself every moment of every day. He gives us his full attention because he loves us. And he's pledged himself to us by the blood of the new covenant. He has forgiven our iniquity. He remembers our sin no more. And because of this covenant love, because of this covenant relationship, we are the recipients of a really wonderful promise. And this is talked about at the very end of our passage this evening. At the end of the passage, Jesus makes his disciples a wonderful promise. That they will dine with him and rule with him in the kingdom of God. And I want you to know that those privileges are not simply reserved for the disciples, but for all who place their faith in Christ. All who put their faith in Christ become sons and daughters of God, baptized into his covenant family. And with covenant membership comes covenant privileges, like eating and drinking in the kingdom of God and sitting on thrones exercising delegated authority like sons and daughters. We are his. So do you know God like this? Do you know that you are his? Do you trust that he actually wants to be with you, to give you his full attention? Do you know that you're forgiven, that you don't have to clean yourself up or have the right things to say in order to receive his gift? Because of the new covenant in Christ's blood, we have wide open access to a God who knows us and loves us and calls us his own. Feast on Christ and live. Amen.